If we think back to early 2019, once the market started to tighten, investors were unable to invest. And I think some of that dynamic rings true again. You don't want to be the last fund trying to buy IG, and already you've missed out on some of the really good buys. From our remote offices in the New York tri-state area, welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. This podcast offers conversations with our analysts to get their perspectives and expertise on the global credit markets. If you're an investment professional that touches the wide universe of fixed income, you will want to give us a listen. We are living in a surreal life right now, but our team of nearly 100 analysts continues to publish content to our more than 15,000 readers across global credit markets. I'm Christopher Snow, the moderator, and I am here with Aaron Lyons, our co-head of investment grade research and our investment grade strategist. Hi, Aaron. Welcome. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. Thank you for sitting down. Uh, today, let's start from a high level. We'll discuss our investment grade outlook. On April 8th, we published an upgrade to our house view on investment grade to outperform. What gets you comfortable in this market? So I guess just to start, the phrase don't fight the Fed has rung in my ears for a few weeks before we we moved the rec to outperform. And it was really finally seeing a number of cases stabilize in New York that made me more comfortable with moving the recommendation. I've spoken to clients through all of this. And what struck me is the amount of cash on the sidelines. We've had clients say, you know, I don't want to to miss out on the rally when it comes back. Coupled with, you know, we've seen reports of non-IG investors stepping into the market for the first time, and just all those drivers has made me more positive on the market. And I guess just to be clear, we, we're not saying that everything is sunshine and roses once again. We do know that there are, or rather we don't know when we're going to be at the peak of the crisis, nor do we know when we're gonna see the other side. The economic data is pretty horrible, and I think worse than most have expected. So we do still have some risks for investors getting nervous again. I don't think the path to tightening is a straight line, although we're off to a pretty good start. The other magic ingredient for the outperform recommendation in my mind was that we were right around a 4% yield on the overall index. And that's generally where I've seen investors step in, especially at the long end of the curve, to take advantage of that better yield opportunity than what we've seen. Yeah, more practically speaking, us as a firm, we've canceled roadshows. We're waiting to see how the year looks before planning in-person conferences. You know, that experience is multiplied throughout the country, throughout the globe, and obviously having an impact on global business activity. Given the global pace of this virus, and I know you've been in contact with our colleagues in our Singapore office, you know, do you have any read there about how the next phase of this looks like for us here in the U.S.? I really wish I had a good read or at least a more promising thought on this. My kids are always asking when they can go outside and and get to the other side. However, we just saw in New York that Cuomo expanded shelter in place in New York through May 15th. And I've seen New York City and some other states have actually canceled in-person school for the rest of the year. So I know Japan and Singapore just put shelter in place as of last week which isn't great news as they seem to have been moving past the initial outbreak. It's interesting that our Singapore colleagues had a pretty civilized experience with COVID the first time around where they had alternating work schedules and temperature checks and crowd control. But as of last week, they went to this total shelter in place or now in the same boat we're in. So I don't know about you, but we're prepared to hunker down for a while and just really kind of keep to ourselves. 
Yeah, I, I can tell you in, in our household, it's much the same. Our neighborhood, when people leave the house, we're sort of buttoned up with masks and you only leave for essential services. And I think that the economic data backs that up. Whether you look at unemployment claims, housing starts, retail sales, affiliate manufacturing index, they've all legged down significantly. It's not surprising, but it's terrible in that it represents a broad swathe of the economy. You know, we have our credit sites macro index, which takes weekly reads of economic data. And where we're tracking now is that we're down 8% in terms of uh, overall GDP. And this informs our process here, where we expect that we're going to have this severe contraction uh, for phase one. And I think in our base case, we're framing it up that it would be through the end of the second quarter. And then we know that there's going to be uh, a second phase to it. In that first phase, corporate liquidity is going to matter most uh, for the companies that we follow. And then in that second phase, when we see relaxations of shelter-in-place policies and then some relaxation in terms of people's social behavior, that might lead to some economic activity, but it's going to be well short of normal. And then there's that third phase, where there is potentially that steady state. And then, you know, we might be able to describe it as normal, but our base expectation is that we do emerge into something that does look like a recession, the severity of which that we're, we're still TBD. Our focus at Credit Sites now is probably mostly on that forced order problem. And you can see that's where corporates have been focused. They've been issuing debt to fill in those short-term uh, liquidity issues. And that's where the CARES Act has come in, where it's less than a stimulus bill and much more of uh, uh, something to fill that gap for individuals and small businesses that are out there. And I think that as we look at earnings season coming up and we look at the companies that we follow, we're going to look at those guys to see where they're going to deploy their own capital and, and assess how they're going to address their capacity issues to see how that second phase is going to shape up. Thanks. And I guess one thing you and I have discussed a lot of is just how the team is thinking about how these poor data points kind of reflect at the sector level. Can you just help fill us in on, on what we're looking at? Yeah, definitely, Aaron. If you look at travel, hospitality, and retail, you know those are sort of the tip of the spear for this crisis, at least as it relates specifically to uh, the virus and the social behavior in response to that, and then uh, the policy response to that. We've seen severe contraction, whether it's the you know, occupancy rates in the U.S. hotels, which is down to 20%. Uh, and that number is probably inflated somewhat because of capacity reductions. We've seen a similar story in terms of load factors for the aircraft. And then the retail sales reports is just these businesses aren't open and therefore seeing very significant tr contractions in their business. You know, some of the discussions that we've had with accounts has been ruling out some of the zero scenarios, certainly as people have looked at cruise lines and how that business might look like on the other side of this crisis. Some people consider that this is not a viable business as we think about how people want to uh, associate with other people. And we've ruled out some of those, but we certainly see that there's going to be a lot of pressure on businesses across the economy. I think that uh, a couple areas that we think can indicate be some telltales about where this ends up is something like sporting events. This is something that fans want, the political structures probably want, and then obviously the leagues and the players have some degree of interest in bringing back that economic activity. And then as you think about whether or not we have fanless games, and you look at the NFL season and their preparations for preseason and those types of activities, is that really by early summer, you'll start to see is how does that interplay of policy response and relaxing shelter-in-place policies versus how economic activity is going to fill in that void. You know, another one further down the horizon would be something like the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Similarly, is Nevada going to relax shelter-in-place policies? And even if they do, are individuals going to want to travel? And then even, you know, people that are working for corporations, are corporations going to tolerate, you know, allowing their employees to travel to those types of events? And so we see those as potential telltales about how the combination of government policies and social behavior is going to interact and where those economic activities 
will happen. The short of it is that uh, credit sites, we still have uh, no travel policy, not surprising. And, uh, you know, if we look to our annual investment grade conference in New York, you know, we still are trying to figure out what that might look like for this year. Yeah, Chris, thanks. And to that end, that's one of the reasons why I'm so happy that we're able to launch these podcasts. We can't travel, but we still want to make sure we're sharing our views and interacting with our clients as easily as possible. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. And that's one of the reasons why we started up this podcast is that we want to be able to get information from uh, our strategy teams and our sector teams, uh, potentially for people who aren't looking as closely at those sectors. Turning back to the markets, we're at a moment where you know, the Fed and the U.S. government have aimed their respective trillion-dollar cannons at this crisis. So arguably, we're seeing trading in the, across the financial markets that are pricing in this you know, policy put. You know, are we really paying attention to the fact that there's this huge unknown here, that in terms of how this virus is going to play out, you know, what the policy response is going to be, and then you know, particularly vexing is that how you and I are going to even think about what we want to do amidst the, those potential relaxed shelter-in-place policies? Right. Good question. And I guess my answer is yes and no. So I think the Fed has played their hand pretty well so far in the fact that the safety net is there and it's really helpful and reassuring to investors. I think about the two facilities they've announced with respect to the corporate credit markets as having different purposes. The first, which is the primary market facility, I view as an insurance policy for issuers such that they have a lender to turn to if need be. But practically speaking, I don't know how many issues are going to use it, given it is more expensive. It's market price plus 100 basis points. And we've seen that even stressed issuers in IG have access to the primary market. Marriott and Carnival have come, uh, latter at 11.5% on their bonds, but they've been able to raise funds. So at that price, it can get done. And what issuer wants to pay an extra 100 basis points on top of that? The secondary program, I think, is where we have more questions, and we think and slash hope the Fed waits to use their bullets for if and when the pipes are clogged again. Given the rally we've seen, I'm not sure if the Fed really needs to step in right now. And I think you're right, Aaron. And I think that there's also a phase where investors are still trying to understand what these programs might mean for the market. Uh, we field a lot of inquiry on the Fed programs uh, in the primary and secondary corporate credit markets. Uh, and there's a lot of confusion about what these programs actually entail. You know, you and the team published a report this week, which went through a Q&A of some of those questions. But maybe you could speak a little bit to those misconceptions and what you see as the actual benefit to the market of those two Fed programs. Sure. And there certainly are still a lot of questions. And I'm guessing that maybe by the time this podcast airs, we'll have more details from the Fed. We've made sure to send our and our clients questions to them. So we're really hoping those get addressed when they release the FAQs. So some of the things we still wonder about are how the programs are going to be run and how issuers will decide to use the Fed as that lifeline, or how does the Fed participate in the primary market? Another big question for us is how do they decide what to buy? Sure, there are parameters, but it's a really wide net. We estimate that about $1.6 trillion of bonds are eligible for purchase, which would be those five years and in, a company with a U.S. headquarters or a country of risk. It's not a bailout recipient and non-banks. One of the misconceptions we believe is out there is that the Fed is going to buy ETFs in size. Do you have a sense of uh, how much they may buy? Yeah, this is one of those questions that I would love for them to address because we've seen so much of the market rally on the back of this hope, especially in the high yield space. We ran through an exercise just to see how much cash could be put to work based on parameters outlined in the Fed term sheets. And we only get to potentially about 20 billion of IG ETF purchases. 
that's about 11% of the current AUM. So not terrible. It would be impactful, but it's not this massive wave. Doing the same math on the high yield side, we get to 10% again. It's about $6 billion of high yield ETF purchases. And with that, I really don't think the Fed's intention of this program was to prop up prices, but rather was to help markets function. Does the Fed really want to hold risky paper via the ETFs? We're hearing from clients that trading is still a bit worse than what it's been over the past few years, but it's not terrible. It's not really back to the mid-March levels where you couldn't do anything. I just don't think the Fed's goal should be to take IG spreads back to these unrealistic levels that we had at the start of the year. So that's kind of one misconception that's out there. The other thing that I have on my mind uh, is the fallen angel risk. And we're getting the impression that some investors think that this has just been waved away now that the Fed has expanded the programs to include fallen angels. What we remind people about is the Fed is only buying bonds through five years and in. So upon downgrades, you're still going to see spreads widen and curves will likely steepen. You'll be okay on the refinancing risk in the short term, but it really doesn't help the entire structure. So I think you could still see a lot of pain from this wave of fallen angels. So I guess long story short, the Fed facilities have given investors confidence that lifelines are there if they are needed. Yeah, I agree, Aaron. Uh, I think the Fed is trying to clear accidents off the freeway and, and not necessarily change the speed limits. I think that you know the actions that we saw, particularly in March, where credit markets and asset-based markets seized up, and even we saw some dislocations in the treasury market and agencies. Are you still seeing dislocations in the market? And I think notably, you know, we saw at the front end of the curve and corporate credit was particularly challenged. You know, what are you, what are you seeing now? So we're still seeing a little bit of dislocation. If I look at the steepness of the curve from the front to the back, it's running about 50 basis points right now, whereas historically it runs about 100, 105 on average. But if you remember what happened when these facilities came into play, the front of the IG curve was inverted, due in part to these massive mutual fund redemptions. We're not there right now. Curves are a bit more normal and demand is certainly focused on the front end. But we're also seeing good buyers in the back end as they're looking for the kind of that maximum yield. You mentioned up top, you know, cash on the sidelines. Uh, there's technicals at play here. You know, we saw some of the largest outflows on the back of this crisis. Those who reversed to some degree at the beginning of the year, we saw a strong bid for IG paper coming from Asia. Has the crisis scrambled those strategies? What else are you seeing in the technical uh, realm? Yeah, so certainly we had seen a pause in buying, also some selling out of Asia, but you know, to start, we're starting to see fund flows turn positive. This past week, uh, we saw about $6 billion come in from Lipper for, for IG, which is a good start. One technical that we're paying attention to to get a sense of that foreign buying are hedging costs. We've seen these come down significantly for both yen and euros in the past couple of weeks, and I do think that's supported buying. I've heard from some of our readers that Japan is now adjusting to working from home, and it may take a bit longer for that buyer base to really get back up and running to drive the market considerably tighter. But in this situation, I do think if you're picking the right credits, the yields are decent and attractive for those longer term buyers, especially given the hedge costs. Also, another technical we're focused on is the primary market. And we just wonder how much of the rally in spreads has been due to repricing from the primary. So supply continues to dominate the headlines and issuers of all sizes and ratings have really been able to come to market. We're running about 50% above last year's pace. And if we repeated 2019 supply from now through the end of the year, 
we'd be up about 16% in 2020. We saw a similar dynamic in 2009, and then we came back down to kind of more normal supply levels. Someone's buying all this paper. And, you know, just a quick note on that, something that goes into our thinking on the technicals is Bank of America reported on its earnings call this week that something like 75% of the revolver draws from corporates was just cash put on the balance sheets. So it makes sense if these corporates are shoring up liquidity and they have the cash. And my question is, do they spend it or does it sit there? If it sits there, I think that really will dictate how we see the primary play out through the rest of the year. Yeah, I mean, one of those considerations when we've seen these revolver pulls and companies start looking at liquidity is, you know, that it brings to the fore the topic of fallen angels. You have this sort of interplay of investment grade structures where you might not clear out front maturities now shifting to high yield structures where, you know, companies are much better managing what those front maturity calendars are looking like. You know, we've seen some big names like Kraft Heinz, Ford Fall, and we've seen some big brands like Macy's. You know, this has been a topic that's that's been sort of prevalent for the last couple of years. We've seen the triple B side part of the index grow uh, so long large, but how, how are we thinking about those now? Yeah. So I think fallen angels certainly are looked at in a different light post the Fed support. That was really a wave of the magic wand to make fallen angels not quite so bad. But this is where I come back to the point I made earlier. It's not the magic solution. Of the 10 names we saw downgraded to high yield from the ice Bamel index in March, only four qualify under our rating for the Fed programs. Then if we do think about the number of fallen angels that has potential to really expand and grow as these kind of weak earnings results come in and companies are out of levers to pull, I think you're just going to see fallen angels bloom. As we think about which names are targeted, it's probably going to be sector specific We are expecting to see greater leniency in non-cyclical sectors, but those high on our list of being in trouble and scoring high on our fallen angel score, which is one of our quant solutions, include energy and, and commodities. Obviously, leisure and lodging and some retail is going to be hit hard as well, and we could see more trouble there. I guess going into the COVID crisis, we were already worried about the big bad triple Bs, so it does seem like the bad situation has only gotten worse and we are expecting more names to fall. And But even if they fall, I mean, I think that, you know, we go name by name, but don't we tend to kind of like them after they fall? We do. And our team has actually put out a couple of upgrades upon the downgrade. You know, work that we've done to show how spreads trend over the life of a downgrade show that there's a considerable amount of widening until it happens. And then once it does, they kind of settle down and, and even rally a little bit. So while downgrades are a problem for triple Bs and IG land, they can actually represent a pretty good opportunity for high yield and crossover investors. Those bad triple Bs look okay to a high yield buyer, and it also offers diversification in access to a large liquid name. The Fed supports facilities tackle one of the biggest concerns, which is the refi risk in that front of the curve. Just thinking about the structures are so much larger than what is in high yield, it it could be more difficult to absorb that debt. At least for now, the Fed gives us some solutions and help. Two recent fallen angels that we like are Kraft Heinz and Ford. We know that Ford does make the cut in terms of Fed support and Kraft Heinz does not as it was downgraded before the March 22nd deadline. Even so, we think Kraft will outperform peers and, you know, I fully agree with that. I have more craft products in my home right now stockpiled than I have ever before. 
You have good company. I was just reading that Bill Gates has a two-year supply of food in his basement as he was preparing for uh, an unknown pandemic. We're coming up towards the end of the session. Maybe we'll just sort of finish with COVID-19 is clearly topic number one. Uh, we've written more than 400 articles on this subject. But what else, Aaron, should investors be thinking about? Obviously, there's still an election this year, but I think that's a relatively moot point at this point. The other thing high on my list, though, is energy. While we did get a deal from OPEC Plus that certainly helps on the supply side, we don't have a good read on to when demand really comes back. We don't think we're out of the woods yet there. And we also would not assume that the supply side is kind of done and, and dusted. So that's high on our list of things to pay attention to as well. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. I think that the uh, the next thing the team is focused on is uh, the upcoming earnings season. We've had the bank's report, and that's going to be the topic of our next uh, podcast session. But otherwise, we look to the management teams to talk about the broad uh, spectrum of impacts that we're going to see from the coronavirus and how that's going to affect income statements and balance sheets. Ultimately, they're the ones deploying their workforces, their cost structures, and their capital in responding to the crisis. And while there's a period of uncertainty for all of us, we think that there's going to be some help insights in terms of where the different pockets of the economy are responding to it and some additional anecdotes and, and, and how we navigate that cycle. And so with that, I'd like to say thank you to our listeners for participating in the session. And thank you, Aaron, for giving us your insights on the investment grade market. As always, listeners, you can find our research on our website, creditsites.com. Or if you're not a subscriber, please contact us at sales at creditsites.com. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or produced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information complained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Received by the listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.